0: Musical, Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And I'm looking forward to listening to this podcast with you today, but. Before I turn the mic over to Lex, I want to be sure that you know about one of Joe Rogan's recent podcasts. Now, I have to admit that I haven't listened to every one of Joe's programs, but then again, I suspect that he hasn't listened to all of these programs from the salon either. But what I do with Joe's podcast is to pick out the conversations that I think I would be most interested in, and I listen to them while I'm in the gym. Actually, uh, (laughs) now that I think about it, I would probably be in triathlete condition if I listened to all of Joe's podcasts and worked out while I did it. Anyway, the program that I want to point out is his interview with Michael Pollan, whose books I've talked about several times here in the Salon. In particular, I was taken with his book titled A Botany of Desire, and if you haven't read that yet, you probably should. It's a short, easy-to-read book that tells the story of how plants may actually be manipulating us more than we humans are messing with them. For sure, it'll probably change your view about the history of an American folk hero called Johnny Appleseed. It turns out that old Johnny may have been one of America's first major drug dealers. (laughs) But uh, it's Poland's latest book that I'm now looking forward to reading – I admit to not having read it yet because it only came out two weeks ago, but it's titled How to Change Your Mind, and the subtitle of this book is What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. After listening to his conversation with Joe Rogan, I'm even more anxious to read this new book. Now, I would have told you all of this anyway, particularly because Paulin and Rogan get into a discussion not only about psychedelics, but also about Terrence McKenna's stone-date theory. And by the way, we'll be hearing from Terrence once again next week. But you can only imagine my surprise when, during their discussion of Terrence McKenna's work, Joe gave the salon a shout-out, which I really appreciate. So, after you finish listening to this podcast from the salon right now, I suggest that you surf over to Joe Rogan's podcast number 1121, where you'll hear some new ideas about psychedelics that should give you some fun things to think about. And now I'm going to turn the mic over to Lex Pelger, who will introduce today's program.
1: A place like Rivendell, (laughs) Lord of the Rings, inhabited by enlightened, spiritual, loving beings...
2: I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Today we have a real treat. Our guest is Dr. Casey Palios, and he's one of the rare psychiatrists on the planet to have worked with the big three. He's done research with MDMA, ketamine, and the psilocybin of magic mushrooms. He's also an old friend from the psychedelic world. And we got to catch up with him at a beautiful airbnb in boulder colorado right underneath the mountains of the front range it's not easy to find scientists with poetry in their soul and i'm glad we got to find casey in such an expansive mood <laughs> Hello, everybody. I'm here with my friend Casey Palios, and he's going to talk about his life as a scientist and a researcher and a physician. Howdy. Hi. Um, so I guess maybe the first question would be, what did you want to do when you were young? What was the first thing that appealed to you?
1: Um, I remember actually wanting to be a doctor early on, um, and I remember really loving biology. That was sort of... Um, the first thing that kind of gripped me, I mean, I think, like, every seven-year-old, I was totally fascinated by, like, dinosaurs and, you know, things like that. And uh, then just, like, biology in general. I used to love watching nature documentaries as a kid. Um, and, you know, just science always captivated me. And uh, and then, you know, becoming a doctor seemed like a way to... Um, do something with science that involved like helping people, which seemed appealing to me. Um, and then I went through a phase in sort of my mid to late adolescence where, you know, doing that, I would have been too pleasing to my parents. And so, um, I thought that I didn't want to do that anymore. I thought it maybe was, you know, I don't know, being too conformist to go down that path. And, um, in college, I, uh, wasn't actually pre-med, I was a film major, studied filmmaking, and um, realized after I graduated, or soon before I graduated, that I didn't have the self-discipline to make any kind of living as an artist. <laughs> um, in my opinion, it's a lot easier to make a living as a doctor than it is as as an artist. Um, so, I mean, at least for me, I'm, like, very ADHD, and, you know, at that point, the I, I really missed studying science um, and you know, the thought of medical school came back to me um, and I entered it with sort of a different a little bit different of an agenda I, I, even back then I had the vague notion that I wanted to go into medicine to do something to like change things change the status quo, change how things were done at that point I didn't know how that would take shape, it was a very sort of kind of inchoate embryonic idea in my mind, but, um, you know, I still retain that kind of, and to this day I retain a sort of adolescent rebelliousness, which I think is um, a fire that a lot of people let go out, and I never, ever wanted that to happen to me. And um, so, but, you know, I I just followed my instincts a lot of times, like just kind of going in the direction that my intuition made me feel was felt like the most right. Um, and so anyway, went back to school after I graduated college, did my pre-med classes at Stony Brook, uh, lived at home for a couple of years in Long Island while I was doing that. And then went down, worked at a research lab in at Duke uh, in North Carolina for a few years in a lab. that was trying to develop a HIV vaccine, which I think is probably still working on it. This was almost this is back around 2000, so almost 20 years ago now, but um, uh, doing a lot of molecular biology and immunology and um, really getting into uh, kind of the, the sort of the weeds of, you know, how things happen uh, physiologically on a molecular level. And, you know, in of all my pre-med stuff, immunology was the most fascinating to me, just the way Um, the body's immune system is, uh, how it develops over time, how it operates, the way we develop, you know, cellular and auto, you know, like antibody mediated immunity and, and just that whole mechanism, which is so beautifully sort of, uh, complex, um, fascinated me, but, so for a little while I thought maybe I wanted to be an immunologist or something, wasn't sure. Um anyway, went up going to med school uh, at the University of Pittsburgh. At that point still didn't really know what I wanted to specialize in. Um and during my third year of medical school we did we do our you do your clinical rotations. So I you know, you go through kind of every sort of specialty and get a taste of what everything's like and find out where you know you kind of fit in the best and sort of to my own surprise psychiatry was kind of the thing that really resonated with, with me the most and it, it was sort of a combination of like realizing a that you can actually help people you know I, I was did my rotation on an inpatient unit and had patients who came in like really profoundly psychotic and you know by the end of a week or two they were actually doing much better and functioning and able to leave and live out in the world and that was very um instructive and kind of uh profound to see that to see you know that there was actually something you could do to help people um who were struggling that hard with something like that and also it just i kind of found my tribe of people i mean it, i think psychiatry of all fields within medicine attracts the people who are most kind of still um uh, what's the word? You know, it's it's this... Psychiatrists tend to have the... Uh, biggest affinity towards the humanities. The, like, they've retained, You know, I had lots of people, like, people who were... Um, like, the residents I worked with as a medical student and then also, you know, going into residency, I mean, a lot of people were... St- people who are also, like, reformed kind of liberal arts majors or whatever, um, English majors, people who were, uh, you know, didn't hadn't lost touch with that sort of side of things or what have you. But, you know, for me, um, the other thing I really have always sort of aspired towards growing up was... Um, was being a writer, and so um, what drew me to filmmaking was this idea of, of telling stories. And um, I, you know, psychiatry also very much uh, preserves the humanity of the patients. Uh, I think when it's practiced properly, does that? You know, you're constantly dealing with people's narratives um, and just the narrative of uh, a human life in all its sort of complexity and meaning um to have that be sort of the focus of your work uh, was very compelling to me too um and by that time also i had uh you know in college i become acquainted with uh, the writing of carl jung and i realized that he's actually you know was a psychiatrist and um you know his theories definitely um spoke to me a lot, and um, I think, and i 'm kind of skipping out of chronological order here, but um, you know early in college, I had my own uh, pretty powerful experiences with psychedelics and um, you know some difficult ones, mostly positive ones, but things that definitely left me sort of questioning the nature of reality and um, the nature of what it is, what it means to be a human being and what it is that we're doing here, like what the point of all this is. Um, there just seems to be so much, uh, again, you know, from a biological standpoint, so much immense beauty and complexity in the living world everywhere around us. And it's its just, it's mind boggling to think about uh, the existence of all these things and also to be as a living creature ourselves to arise out of that with and develop this capacity to actually study it and understand it and, you know, draw meaning from it, comprehend it. You know, Albert Einstein said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is it's comprehensibility. (laughs) And it's that, uh, that is what, you know, really draws me to this work, uh, that and its capacity for um, sort of stoking the crucible of transformation. Um, The medicine, the drugs that we use in this work aren't sufficient alone, but they're a necessary ingredient, I believe, in sort of catalyzing that whatever sort of alchemical reaction is happening on a psycho spiritual level um, to enable transformation and to enable people to break through the blockages that sort of crop up in their lives and um, that keep them from from growing and progressing and evolving. I think you know we we 're all born with this innate inborn capacity to grow and evolve and uh, depending on life circumstances, especially you know traumatic circumstances, that progression, that evolution, growth can become arrested, Oh, can become um, frozen. You know, people can get sort of uh, the process and people can kind of get trapped in places. And um, a lot of this, what this work can do is to help um, soften up the kind of scar, psychological scar tissue that forms around that to... Give space for things to breathe and start moving again, for um, blood, so to speak, to start flowing through it to permit you know, people to put down new roots and start growing in new directions again. It's a pretty difficult
2: path, especially these days, to be both a researcher and a doctor trying to help people. Um how did that evolve for you and then how did being able to study these formerly demonized drugs come about for you
1: Yeah that was very serendipitous Um so uh you know I started out um you know when you go to medical school and you figure out what you want to do you apply to a bunch of programs for residency and um you know I based my decisions largely on uh geography. I mean, obviously the reputation of school, but you know, I applied to a lot of mostly residency programs that were in the northeast cuz I'm from New York originally, um and kind of wanted to go back home uh, or near home to do my training cuz that's kind of where I wanted to end up practicing. So, um so NYU was among those programs and I, you know, I interviewed there and was really impressed by sort of the clinical training. I mean, it's affiliated with Bellevue Hospital, which is like one of the oldest, most famous uh, hospitals and psychiatric hospitals in the country. And, um, you know, speaking to the residents when I was interviewing there, just got a sense of how, you know, they really felt um, like they were getting excellent training. and um, So I wound up matching there for residency. Um, again, with sort of vague notions of where my career was headed. I mean, at that point, I, obviously I knew I wanted to be a psychiatrist. I didn't know exactly what kind of psychiatrist I wanted to be, but I knew that I wanted to, you know, I didn't want to be one of these guys who just sees four or five patients an hour and just dispenses pills and like on to the next one. I mean, that type of practice never, ever appealed to me. And another reason why psychiatry really appealed to me in general is that it's one of the few professions that has, I think of necessity resisted this, the uh, impetus towards eroding the doctor patient Relationship. You know, I think increasingly in other fields of medicine, the relationship is sort of boiled down to what's quantifiable and, you know, you go in to see a doctor and he does a bunch of, or she does a bunch of lab tests and gets some imaging done. And, um, you know, everything's sort of boiled down to the kind of the least, um, subjective, uh, components of the presentation. And that's what the decisions are based on in a lot of medicine. And, to me, the doctor-patient relationship is what was important. I mean, I, you could be a scientist and work in a lab, and that's—I would rather do that if it was all going to be about you know numbers and quantification. But the point for, of becoming a doctor, to me, was so that you can actually interact with other human beings and help them um, in a way that you know is tangible and and meaningful and sort of immediate. Um, you know, obviously, you know, basic science research is obviously very important and necessary, but you're not dealing with like real life human beings in, in, in real time. Um, so, you know, I didn't want to go and go through the whole trouble of medicine of training in medicine and going through medical school and all that stuff just to, um, find myself interfacing with, you know, mainly just a bunch of lab values and numbers. It just wasn't didn't really do it for me so you know with psychiatry you 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 know for better for worse we don't have we can't boil people's problems down in psychiatry to like a bunch of lab values we don't have you know those tools and i don't know that we'll ever really have those tools um but it requires that you base your you know your clinical decision making on getting to know the person that's in front of you and getting to know their their life story and their narrative and understanding how you know everything that sort of has transpired in their life, their life has brought them to the moment that, uh, has them sitting in front of you and telling you their story. Um, so, I mean, I knew I wanted that to be a part of what I did. Um, so, you know, with, um, psychiatry, especially in, in, in New York, you know, there's still the tradition of a, the psychiatrist as a psychotherapist remains a thing. It's, that's kind of been preserved um, in a lot of other places in the country, sort of economics and health insurance industry and that kind of thing has made it increasingly difficult for psychiatrists to practice that way. But um, in New York, at least, can continue to sustain, make that a viable sort of career path. Um, so, you know, I knew I wanted to be a, a doctor, a psychiatrist that actually spoke to my patients, got to know them. I got to NYU, started my training there. And during my third year of, uh, training, this must've been like 2009, I, uh, attended a grand rounds lecture that was given by Steve Ross, who is, um, or was the, the primary investigator of the NYU psilocybin cancer anxiety study. And he, this was like very early on during that, uh, that study. Um, I think they had maybe treated six or seven participants at that point. Um, and I sat through this lecture and was just dumbfounded because I had no idea. I mean, I had no, I knew a, a bit about the research that had gone on, you know, in the fifties and sixties. And I knew that there was sort of a moratorium placed on it when all those I mean, basically prohibition was, uh, enacted. And those, as you said, those, the substances were demonized and banned. Um, I had no idea a that that research had resumed again and B that it was happening like literally in my backyard, right where I was doing training. So it, to me, it just seemed too, too serendipitous to not be like something I needed to follow up on. Um, because as I mentioned, I had had my own sort of personal experience of psychedelics that had affected me in a personal and, you know, pretty powerful way. Um, and had kind of maintained a sort of interest in subject matter. That was kind of where my curiosity was kind of fueled by those experiences. So like a little bit more esoteric, um, stuff, um, kind of like, you know, having to do with young and alchemy and, um, uh, you know, psycho spiritual, spiritual things, um, Things that are kind of, I think, uh, trivialized by a lot of, uh, by the majority of the sort of scientific community. Um, you know, the, sort of the reductionist camp of of the scientific community tends to kind of trivialize that stuff or pathologize it. Um, so I never, you know, and yet my interest in that was sort of very, still sort of independently strong, kind of in parallel to the sort of scientific track that I was on in, in this conventional sort of medical training. And all of a sudden when I was at that talk, it dawned on me like this was a path where these two things could actually kind of start to become braided together instead of running in parallel lines. And it could just kind of really clicked for me that this is what I was actually, this is what all of this work has been leading up to is this you know, this is where I'm meant to be working. This is what my life's work needs to consist of in large part. So I approached Steve after that talk, um, asked him how I could get involved as a resident. He was totally open and just said, yes, I mean, email. We'll have a meeting. We did. And then I was like, within a few months, I was uh, the first resident in like 50 years to be treating a psychedelic psychotherapy patient. it was really really cool um so i got to be a study therapist in the psilocybin cancer study um with steve as my co-therapist and from there you know i started making contacts within the, the sort of larger psychedelic community met a lot of the people at johns hopkins started meeting a lot of the folks at maps um and uh as time went on um my uh I finished my residency training, uh, stayed on at NYU for a few years, uh, working in the emergency department there as a site, psych- like a consulting psychiatrist, uh, did a ketamine study with Steve, uh, as co-PI with him. And, um, then eventually, uh, got connected to, uh, maps when they were getting starting, just starting to get the phase three study underway. They were recruiting therapists. Um, and I, uh, contacted a friend of mine Ingmar Gorman who I think you've interviewed on this show before um asked him this was a couple of years ago now like what opportunities there were with maps because i was you know becoming very interested in the MDMA PTSD work that they were have been doing and continue to do um and he said well as it happens they're interviewing for therapists right now and he just connected me with the right person and i interviewed with uh Marcella Otolara who's who practices here um, I'm sure I just butchered her last name. Sorry, Marcella, but, um, I think it's was Otolara. I think she corrected me the other day, but anyway, um, Marcella, lovely, lovely woman yeah, who's been doing this work for 20 years now. Um, she interviewed me and, uh, I was, uh, offered an opportunity to become a study therapist in the MDMA study, which I very happily accepted. And, uh, went through that training with uh her and Michael and Annie Mythoffer um and uh eventually became one of the uh co-PIs along with Ingmar at uh the uh private practice site at NYU so we're one of the 14 uh phase 3 clinical trial sites for the uh NDMA for PTSD study um so That's a very long-winded version of how I got involved in this work. A lot of it is honestly just happenstance and being in the right place at the right time, without any conscious intention to to be there. Really, I mean, really, it's like that is how a lot of I don't know. For me, anyway, that's a lot of some of the most important moments of my life have happened in a very synchronistic way, and that's kind of how I know that I'm on the right path. You know um when the universe kind of winks at you and it's like here you go stupid pay attention
2: <laughs> uh that's true but so much of luck uh that gets called luck is hard work by someone who's really
1: paying well, attention yes chance, you, babe, you made
2: sure to show up at steve ross's thing you had the uh,
1: fortitude to go up and talk to him afterwards that's true although I'd, in fairness to me to my my deflecting any ownership over this um I didn't know what his talk was going to be about that day. <laughs> I didn't know what Steve Ross's work was about, but um, he had given us a couple of lectures in our, you know, in the uh, addiction psychiatry part of our sort of uh, teaching curriculum. But I didn't know he was doing the psychedelic stuff, anyhow. But yes, I think who was it? Pasteur. That's a chance favors a prepared mind. Um, that's true. That's definitely true. Um, it is this weird combination of like keeping the ground fertile and just but being open to new experiences i don't know it's like there is an element of at the risk of sounding totally pretentious you know wu-wei kind of this um uh effortless action or or actionless doing Taoist principle um Taoist philosophy really hit me hard in the wake of my early psychedelic experiences. It just very much resonated with me. I I do really think the Taoists had a pretty good grasp on how the universe works. Um, So, anyhow, yeah, I mean, uh, I used to say I was lucky. Lately, I've had people correct me to use the word blessed rather than lucky. Um, So I guess I have been blessed with a lot of just... Fortunate uh, circumstances. It is it is a
2: remarkable journey, and actually, maybe we can go back a little bit and just focus on uh, some of those parts that you that you mentioned on the path. Uh, the first one being to be a, a resident giving mushrooms to someone dying of cancer uh, at a, you know, a NYU facility. What was it like, and what were and what did those actually look like to someone who might not have seen what uh, these. Uh, peer-reviewed psychedelic sessions are
1: look like. So, um, it's interesting because you know there's it. it the protocol that used at NYU and Hopkins, all these this sort of this Renaissance second wave of uh, or third wave of of psychedelic therapy, uh, are very much steeped in the tradition that was I think initially put into place by Stan Groff um, back at uh, Spring Grove in Maryland in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and there they came up with this model where it's all, obviously it's all about set and setting, right? The mindset of the participant, um, and the other people in the room, which in this case would be the other therapists. Um, the fact that there is a a, a dyad rather than a single therapist, usually male and female. Um, though in my case it was two males with me and Steve, but most of the time it's male and female. Um, the room, the setting itself is, is deliberately, uh, designed to be non-clinical. So it's not uh, like one of these terrifying CIA experiments where you're like strapped to a stretcher and they're dosing you uh, through your eyeballs with LSD or something. Um, it's, it's meant to evoke a kind of a comfortable living room type of atmosphere. Um, so a person is um, made to feel at home. And um, there's a lot of time spent in that physical space before the dosing session uh, doing what we, I guess we'd call a prep session, prep sessions consisting of, uh, several hours over a period of a couple of weeks, um, getting to know the person's life story. And in this particular study, it was, it's cancer anxiety. So, you know, consisted of early history, but then also a lot of like what their life was like around the time of the cancer diagnosis. There, uh, a lot of them had, had already gone, finished through treatment, what that was like. Um, just the whole uh, process around confronting death and mortality, um, and this is what a lot of these people, understandably, had a lot of anxiety about. And um, you're doing all of that stuff and developing the rapport uh, between you know the therapeutic diet and the, the participant. Um, you know, cultivating a, an atmosphere of trust and safety, um, so that by the time that you're actually there on you know, a weekday morning giving them psilocybin, um, it's in an environment they they've kind of gotten used to and they feel safe in and with two people that they have gotten to know and trust a bit. Um, so on the actual dosing day, in this study, um, in the Hopkins studies, we're not giving mushrooms but actually synthesized pure psilocybin. Um, so it comes in like a little capsule form. It looks like a, like a white pill. Um, and there, we try to maintain or, you know, preserve a sort of ceremonial aspect to it. So there is a moment in the beginning where we kind of set intentions for the session, for the day, what's going to happen. We, you know, obviously the participants are sort of driving that and, uh, we offer the medicine to them in a little bowl, uh, and they take it. And at that point, um, it's just kind of, you know, we have a a setup where there are headphones um, that are playing a sort of a predetermined playlist of music. Uh, The participant is also uh, an eye mask um, and they're encouraged uh, once they start feeling the medicine take its effect to kind of go inward, listen to the music. And at that point there begins this kind of, uh, this sort of back and forth where you know we're asking them to sort of go inward and let whatever spontaneously comes up to come up Um, and then intermittently we'll be checking in with them and they'll might have things that they want to say to us or they might just want us sort of to be physically nearby to be a source of support Um, and really during the most intense phase of the dosing session mainly what we're doing is really just holding the space for them. Um, a lot of the talking tends to happen in the la- latter stages when they're sort of coming down off the acute effects, the peak effects of the the medicine, and um, uh, are less directly engaged with this, the often very powerful material that's coming up from uh, inner sources for them and at that point our role is to kind of help them make sense of the material Um, and that process continues in the days and weeks that follow through integration sessions Um, and uh, in that study we did two dosing sessions one was an active placebo the other one was uh, psilocybin Um, so the process kind of repeats itself again Um, and then they are obviously along the way because it's a research study. They're doing all kinds of um, scales and questionnaires and that kind of thing. Um, you know, so obviously we're there to make sure that you know to hold the space, as I said, but also to maintain safety, make sure that nothing really goes awry during the session. We're also monitoring their vital signs. So there's, a, you know, kind of that aspect sort of preserves this sort of the medicalized part of it. But I think that also helps people feel a little bit safe too just to know that there's a physician there and we're monitoring their blood pressure and heart rate and this kind of stuff. They're, you know, We're not going to let anything horrible happen to them while they're under the influence. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what it's like. But it's uh, obviously the content of what's coming up is highly individual for each person.
2: What did it feel like the percentage was where people had a really beautiful opening trip versus someone who had a trip that was – probably overall positive but definitely had some hard spots versus the number really just had very difficult experiences that you really had to be there the whole
1: time. Percentage-wise, it's hard to say. I only had like a, couple, a handful of – so it's a pretty small sample size for me. Um, but, I mean, I can tell you just from speaking to the group at large, um, I I, uh, I mean, numbers-wise, I would say the majority of people at least at one – point or another during the experience encountered some significant difficulty or anxiety um i think psilocybin has that tendency more so than with mdma i mean i haven't done i've I've observed a lot of dosing session i haven't actually done a dosing session myself yet with mdma but um i think with psilocybin uh it does have a tendency to be somewhat confrontational um in a way that's still preserves this kind of um, this kind of like there's a gentle sort of wisdom to it. It's not, you know, there are. It seems like that nobody's ever encountered an experience that was so harrowing that they you know, like the only choice was to terminate it. Nobody's ever. I mean, we actually do keep emergency there are an emergency stock of an antipsychotic and a benzodiazepine in the session room with us, but. To my knowledge, it's never actually ever been used in any of the psilocybin studies. But, I mean, that escape valve is kind of there. Um, But, you know, to my knowledge, nobody's ever gotten to the point where that's had to be used. Like, every time it gets difficult, it ends up being an opportunity for them to really confront kind of the dark heart of what's really torturing them you know what's driving their suffering and instead of you know run away from it or hide from it actually get through it in a way that enables them to kind of integrate something from the experience um and you know achieve a state of healing around it and then I know I'm describing that vaguely, but, you know, there's um, something about the experience of of confronting some very powerful uh, forces that seem to be threatening and um, exogenous, like coming from some outward sort of malevolent place and learning through the experience that that's not something that actually has any power over you, that it is all kind of coming from internal places. And um, there is a a sort of a a path through the labyrinth and you can find safe passage through it um, that, you know, discovering that you do have the inner resources to kind of, confront something like that and get to the other side and remain intact and whole and alive, um, there's something that's very profoundly empowering about that for people. Um, and also, there's something about uh, being on a, in a psychedelic session, having that a psychedelic experience that is... Um, I think you're kind of dipping into the, the waters of death a little bit. There's something, to me at least, it's always felt like you're you're kind of piercing the veil a little bit, and peeking behind the curtain, and walking for a little while in, you know, on the paths that we take when we die, um, and then coming back to the waking living world, and that changes you. Having that experience changes you, and so many of the people in the psilocybin study. Came out saying how they realized that death is not an ending; it's a transition, and the the various individual ways in people came to that uh, sort of epiphany differs a little bit from person to person. But um, that came up time and time again. Just this idea that um, we are more than you know we're more than just our physical bodies that you know, the universe is, um, everything's interconnected, you know, there's this sort of eternal, um, oneness that every living thing is a part of. Um, people had a direct experience of that somehow by, I think, transcending the limitations that, uh, are necessary to have a sort of this boundaried ego that you need to get through the world on a day-to-day level. You need to have these sort of, you know, this kind of casing around you that, you know, you need to be able to use to navigate through the world. But, you know, over time that those boundaries can become very sort of ossified and um, have a tendency to close people off from, the immediacy of their experience. I mean, you look in the eyes of, like, a little kid, like, every single experience a little child is having is immediate and unmediated by this rubric of, like, judgments and labels and and um, really just, like, classification and language that we uh, gather over the years through just living life and our education and, you know, just in the world and in school and whatever. I mean, we start to live life through increasing degrees of separation from the actual world um and you can get trapped in that space pretty easily um if you don't make a practice of uh doing things that can reconnect you to the immediacy of the world and that to me is what what makes psychedelic experiences so powerful is that it it just that's kind of what it's doing it's it's bringing you in touch with a level of reality that's deeper than the level that we have words for. And so you have no choice but to interface with it in an immediate way, with an immediacy that we lose past a certain age. Um, And that's, I think, by doing that, you're kind of bringing your consciousness back closer to the source of all being. Um, Because this stuff, you know, the, the structures, the cognitive kind of maps that we carry around in our heads um, are very useful, but they're not reality. And so what we do so much of the time is is confuse our map of the world with the territory. We confuse, you know, our sort of really imagined reality with what's actually real. And it colors your whole experience. And if you're somebody who's had a lot of traumatic experiences, especially at a formative stage, really any stage of your life. But, you know, when you have that sort of you, when you're placing that pattern over your interactions with the world, things tend to look threatening even when they're not. Um, and you know, what happens with mental illness is it's, it's, I think it's a lot in a lot of cases, You're dealing with a distorted lens. You're seeing the world through um, a screen that colors everything a certain way. And um, the mind is very good at picking up patterns. But that capacity can be twisted when you're entering a situation with a certain expectation and you're placing all of your emphasis on the things that support your sort of preconceived notion. And let's say the preconceived notion is the world is dangerous. You're going to pick up on cues that support that notion and really kind of ignore the cues that refute it. And in that way, your experience kind of builds and builds and builds on itself. And so, you know, when you have lived that way long enough, it becomes very difficult to see or experience the world outside of that. It just becomes a really sort of habitual Again, like sort of ossified way of interfacing with the world. And on a psychedelic, when you're thrust into the sphere where you have to face reality on reality's terms, not the terms that you're bringing to it, um, it can really shake that up. And if it's done properly in sort of a, a kind of a loving, safe uh, vessel or container, you know what can, you know, you sort of boil everything up and soften it up, and what can harden, re-harden on the other side of that process is something that is more in line with, you know, the benevolent aspects of reality, because there's both. You know, there's light and shadow, and there's, you know, you can't walk around the world, you know, with rose-colored glasses and think everything's peachy and great, because that's not real either. But, you know, it's, it's about finding... Or regaining one's uh, the balance of one's perception of the world, if that makes sense. Especially with what you were saying about
2: psilocybin being more challenging, because I think it's what the whole old heads often say is that with LSD you get to be a little bit more in the driver's seat, mm. but with mushrooms the fungi is in the driver's mm-hmm. seat, and they she makes it go where uh, where it might be best, even if that's uncomfortable.
1: Right. Well, yeah, and I've always thought, I mean, psilocybin is always fascinating me because it co- does come from mushrooms. And, you know, in the uh, natural world, I mean, the, the function of, of fungi in the ecosystem is to break things down. It's to take, it's to transform uh, death into new life in a way. Um, but, it, you know, it, it, without the fungi, you know, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have, like, the forest ecosystem would be impossible. You need that element of breaking things down um, and softening things up from the forms that they retain before so that they can then take on new forms um, and I think that's what's happening in, in some pretty um, in a pretty real way when when you're ingesting this substance from from the fungus the psilocybin it is working the kind of the same doing the same sort of task that the fungi do in the natural world you know on the forest floor it's breaking things down and helping them you know breaking things down into its constituent parts and helping it reassemble into new forms um and you know obviously those new forms are going to be influenced by the the environment the the conditions that uh prevail at the time of that forming so that's why the set and setting are so important because it's not enough just to break things down. I mean, you need to be able to foster new growth in a way that in a form that's positive and, and helpful and, um, you know, supportive of new growth and, and equilibrium, um, achieving a, a healthier state of equilibrium um so you know these tools can't be just applied willy-nilly without paying very close attention to what are the conditions that you're creating when you bring a person into that state of um kind of renewed fecundity <laughs> and it's one of the big pushbacks it
2: feels like against The medicalization of these psychedelics from anarchists like uh, Dimitri Mugianis, who Mm -hmm. just – the last thing he wants to see is anyone in the medical profession being the gatekeepers for psychedelics. And I'm sure you know about the dark sides of Mm -hmm. how this could go with certain um, people. I'd like to have someone like you, Dos Meeks. I know you know how to make a good space. Um, But – as these start getting rolled out, what about psychiatrists who have never experienced these uh, trying to create a space for something where they really don't understand? How are there ways to make that better?
1: Well, I think that it's really hard to know how to help somebody navigate that space when you've never navigated it yourself. And so that's the whole rationale behind the MT1 study, which is um, the protocol that MAPS uh, has in place to allow study therapists that are working uh, to provide – the treatment in the MDMA for PTSD protocol to themselves have their own uh, MDMA-assisted therapy experience, um, which is what actually brings me to Boulder today. I'm here this week for that. So just yesterday, I'm um, in really right in the middle of that process right now. Yesterday, I had the first of two dosing sessions, which may or may not have been MDMA or placebo. And tomorrow, I'm going to have the other one, which will be the opposite. Pretty sure that what I got yesterday was MDMA, but not 100%. <laughs> um, Marcella and Bruce, who are the the therapy diet that um, are administering the protocol to me while I'm here, say that they've had they've observed this interesting phenomenon where the, in, the psychiatrists that they get in session, as opposed to like therapists or social workers, all kinds of clinicians that are uh, recruited as study therapists, but there's a subset of us who are you know MD psychiatrists for some reason um, they've. Had ex- they've observed in a couple of them so far that they've had an experience where they were convinced that it was MDMA. Everybody there was convinced. And then they found out, actually, the next session was the MDMA. So something weird is happening. Some kind of crazy placebo effect is happening with psychiatrists, and they call that the psychiatrist effect. So I don't know. Because of that, I'm reserving 100% judgment on what happened yesterday, but I know that what happened was very powerful and um, mind-altering. So, hey, if that's placebo, then... Yeah, I guess start making more of those sugar pills. I don't know. But, um,
2: <laughs> I think it's part of the beauty of this is that yeah. the intention with any of these drugs yeah. can often be, I, tell you, I often explain to my father, it's great to have all your friends say, we're going to go out in the woods and take mushrooms together. Sometimes you don't even, you don't need the mushrooms for it to turn into a psychedelic experience just because you're going to spend time with your people totally.
1: doing this out in the woods or something. Yeah. It's it. the set and setting are so powerful. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a friend who calls psychedelics like placebo on rocket fuel. Um, I mean, you know, that makes a little bit of sense because it is it is so much contingent on what your expectations are. Um, but yeah, I mean, the fact that you can have an, an experience that feels that profoundly mind-altering just... Be, it's also the ceremony too, right? So it's like the, the therapy team in the room, the person there, everyone has this expectation. And then like there's some like magical transaction that happens when you take a pill and put into your body, like you're priming your whole psyche for something to happen. And sometimes unusual things can happen. Even if it's, there's, uh, you know, the substance that you've ingested is technically inert. You know, the act of taking it itself has a power or can have a power. So, um, anyway, I did take something yesterday and, um, You know, had a very profound sort of session with them. Um, Lasted about, I don't know, five or six hours from start to finish. Um, And, you know, confronted, got just got some new perspectives and new angles on things that I've been you know, had kind of had a certain level of awareness over the years, just sort of, um, some of my own internal dynamics around, you know, things that happened in my upbringing and my own trauma during childhood, the way that's informed, um, the way I am in the world today. And, you know, the relationships that I have now with my, you know, my close, the close people close to me in my life and how that, um, Really gaining some insight into how. Um, so, I, Michael Anthony Mythoffer and Marcella and Bruce um, put a lot of uh, stock into this uh, kind of theoretical framework, uh, psychotherapeutic framework um, called internal family systems, which uh, essentially. Um kind of brings attention to the fact that each of us kind of that the each of our psychology is kind of uh comprises a number of different what parts right so and and each part takes on a sort of a different role within the person's psyche um and so there's um you know there are protectors, Um, there's like the inner child, there's parts of of us that are there to protect the inner child. Um, There are, um, and there are dynamics that happen between those parts within us. So, um, you know, I think we all sort of can, it's it's a very sort of intuitively appealing framework. I think we all sort of um, kind of get that 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 exists. Like, you know, we are sort of a multiplicity, um, you know, we're each an individual person, but our individuality is made up of this sort of multiplicity of constituent parts that, um, sometimes are working in tandem and in unison with each other and sometimes are working at odds with each other. I mean, the idea of being in inner conflict, right? Everyone's had the experience of being internally conflicted about something. Well, who's, Where is that conflict? Who is that conflict happening between? It's these parts of us. And um, the MDMA can sort of permit you to uh, take a step back away from those parts in a way, but at the same time empathize with what each of those parts needs Um, and can, through that, enhance understanding, you can understand a little bit more about the dynamics of what's really going on internally when you do encounter in inner conflict or behaviors that run counter to, um, you know, your highest good or your greatest health, because um, we all engage in self-sabotage in various ways and ways in which we kind of limit ourselves and limit our, um, potential. And I know I definitely have done that. Um, and so a lot of what came up yesterday was trying to understand, like, well, what's going on uh, in these moments when, you know, I find that I am sabotaging myself. Or, you know, lots of us have this sort of a, a very critical voice in our heads that um, finds its, you know, thinks its job is to sort of cut everything down or to, to, to you know, um, make you feel... Um really bad about things in certain ways. Um and you know, through the skill of Marcella and Bruce in combination with um sort of the enhanced awareness that the medicine brought to me, um and this uh, kind of dialectic that was happening between my internal process and which, you know, would happen, they would encourage me to sort of go inward. I had, there were headphones and an eye mask involved in this process too, very similar to the psilocybin protocol. Um, go in, listen to the music, sort of let things come up, um, and then come out of that, sort of hash that material with with Bruce and Marcella and, um, have them help me kind of, uh, sort of flesh out the understanding a little bit. Um, and it was a lot of that sort of process going back and forth, um, that over the course of the day got me to a place of kind of realizing, um, ways in which, uh, can be sort of uh, limiting myself and how to accomplish what the parts of me that are sort of imposing that limitation, accomplishing what they want in a way that circumvents the limitation or doesn't, makes the limitation not necessary. Getting to a place of sort of harmonious agreement amongst those parts such that the block is sort of lifted and taken out of my way and I can sort of grow, continue to grow and move forward and progress and become a more effective person. And now you got to sit on the couch like that and
2: have an experience. What are your, in your opinion, what do you think are some of the most important traits of a good sitter? What do they bring to the table that
1: you think matters the most? Um, I think openness and receptivity are probably the most important traits just being attuned to what's going on in the person's process. And, and you know, in the MAPS training for therapy, we talk a lot about uh, what we call the inner healing intelligence. So this idea that within each of us, there is this uh, sort of reside, like this kind of intrinsic wisdom that resides in each of us. And um, which I believe very strongly in. And you see it, you know, even... I think it's something that lives in our bodies, in our cells. It's, we, it exists on a cellular level in each of us. I mean, if you get a scratch on your arm or something, you know, there's nothing that you can do consciously to make that heal. Your body's an inner healing intelligence is what knits the tissue back together and so that you can have an intact organism again. Um, and I think this very same process is happening on a psychological level when there's wounds and trauma. So being as a therapist, as a study, as a, you know, in In supporting that process, it requires that you first of all have an understanding and a respect for for the existence of that capacity within the person, the participant themselves who are undergoing the session um, and knowing how to kind of get out of its way, so to speak, you know when it's because and also to recognize when the participant is kind of uh, resisting at times the incursion of that process because sometimes it can be frightening. It can be leading people into a direction that rushes up against some defense that um, has been in place for a long time to keep them from feeling anxious feelings um, or painful feelings. But sometimes to get to a place of healing, you need to get through that uncomfortable space. Um, so you know, knowing how to support that without having an agenda you know, but being able to recognize, you know, when the inner healing intelligence is sort of, has been activated and essentially helping to create the space for, and hold the space for that process to happen. Um, and you know, it requires that the person as a whole has to go through this place of vulnerability. Like you can't, change things on that deep of a level without opening yourself up to change, which means becoming vulnerable and becoming open to potentially harm. Right. I mean, people shut down and they create these shells which keep them in places of, of fear and anxiety, but it's for a survival function. I mean, it's, it's there so that no further harm will come to the organism. The only way to, to undo the harm that's been done is to open it back up. And when you're in that place of being opened up, it can be really, really threatening Especially if you're somebody who suffered a lot of trauma, you don't ever want to be opened up again like that because last time that was the case, you it really didn't end well, so you know being able to create a space where that can actually happen, and the medicine facilitates that opening up um but then what happens after it opens up is you know if the conditions are right, the inner healing intelligence it just will spontaneously you know we have a tendency towards wholeness is a reason why um you know if you break your bone if you put the cast on and put the you know the bones in the right place together they're just going to spontaneously knit back together our bodies our organism has a tendency towards wholeness and i mean that's what like stan grof, grof used the word holotropic instead of psychedelic this this tendency back towards wholeness um and so you know these substances can easily be described as holotropic or these processes can be described as holotropic it's a process that supports the body's the organism's natural tendency to regain a state of wholeness. So, you know, you have somebody who's been injured and closed off and they have regained a state of closed of of wholeness, but it's a closed off type of wholeness and it's wholeness in a way, you know, you can think of it as like a bone that's kind of set in the wrong way. You know, it's not it's not ideal and it's, it's still contributing to loss of functioning and further pain. And sometimes you got to break a bone again to get it to set properly. That's kind of what we're doing here (laughs) in a way. Um, and, uh, that's very scary for a lot of people, understandably. But, um, you know, when the process goes right, what you have at the end is, is a, a new state of wholeness that is, healthier and more functional and more conducive towards having a joyous life. Um, And there's no really higher purpose to my mind than to be in a position to help people overcome their suffering and and instead of be enchained by it and and, uh, imprisoned by it, use it as um, a pathway to a greater being to growth. So we went over something about two of your tools with
2: psilocybin and MDMA. I wanted to ask uh, some more about ketamine, sure. mostly because that's, I think one of those fascinating drugs we have mm-hmm. in uh, the last couple of decades. It's I always see it as a double-edged sword of our generation. It's it's such a vital anesthetic that gets used all over the world. Um, we'll talk about your work with depression um, and ketamine, but it's also uh, very psychologically addictive and is mm-hmm. rightly called, I think, psychedelic heroin. Mm-hmm. And it can uh, it's an easy drug that physically you won't get addicted, but psychologically you just keep on taking because it's very easy to create a cloud between yourself and your emotions and the world Mm. uh things like that um it's a very slippery slope and so it's so fascinating because it can be so good for for some people's chronic depression and then it can also just exacerbate that into much worse spots so i wanted to just ask what was it like for you to start getting involved in ketamine work
1: yeah so ketamine has been really uh an exciting development in the field of psychiatry um i think it's important to make a distinction between ketamine as it's used in anesthesia versus ketamine as it's used in antidepressant protocols versus ketamine as as it's used recreationally. Because those are three pretty different things. Um, you know, in anesthesia, and, and, and I think there, a lot of it is a function of of uh, dosing and frequency. So, you know, in anesthesia, you're using relatively high doses. We're talking maybe like four to eight milligrams per kilogram, um, to essentially put a person into a state of complete dissociation where, you know, like an invasive surgery can happen and they're not going to feel it and they're not going to remember it and they're not going to be traumatized by it psychologically. Um, And it's a very useful tool uh, and it's been in use since the early 1970s for that purpose. Um, It's also a very safe anesthetic. It's it's one of the only, if not the only, anesthetic that doesn't suppress, um, you know, heart rate and uh, the respiratory centers of the brain. So they actually to this day still use it as like a battlefield anesthetic. So, you know, you have somebody who's, you can't afford to um, lower their blood pressure because they're bleeding out from a wound or something. You use ketamine. Um, so, you know, it's a very useful anesthetic in a lot of situations. It's also very brief and short acting. So, um, you know, for, uh, uh, interventions like, um, in emergency rooms, for example, especially in like pediatric emergency rooms, they'll use ketamine, um, slightly, maybe like two to four milligrams per kilogram, um, for what we would call procedural sedation. So again, you're inducing a pretty short lived state of dissociation. Uh, you know, say a kid comes in with like a separated shoulder, um, and they need to put the joint back into the socket and that's obviously very painful. Frequently they'll give a kid ketamine so that, they can do the procedure and it's painless to the child and, you know, within 20 minutes they're sort of back to their baseline and um, everything's good. Um, so it's a highly useful medicine for that for those purposes. Um, its use as an antidepressant went undiscovered for 40 years, I think largely because of the fact that the, at that dose you're not really causing much of an antidepressant effect. So nobody ever noticed that there was an antidepressant effect until... By accident, there was a group uh, at Yale um, using low dose uh, ketamine for in um, to study as a model for schizophrenia, um, because there is some you know hypothesizing that uh, the biochemical mechanism of ketamine might sort of mimic some of what's going on in a brain that's uh, undergoing like a psychotic episode. So. Um, they discovered as part of those studies that very low dose ketamine we're talking like a half milligram per kilogram, uh, administered intravenously, um, aside from what they ever they were looking for in terms of the psychotic side of things, they saw that people who were taking it at that dose were becoming, uh, who had severe depression were finding their depression to sort of lift kind of miraculously within a few hours. Um, And, you know, for days or weeks in some cases. And so that was initially observed and uh, was obviously an intriguing finding, um, enough for them to sort of try and repeat it with a placebo control in a cohort of, I think, 12 or 14 patients. Uh, These are treatment-resistant patients with either depression or or bipolar disorder. Um, That was done at Yale, uh, and and the results were published in 2000, um, and showed versus placebo This what seemed like a very real and robust antidepressant effect at that dose. Um, The finding was so kind of out beyond the pale of any understanding or any of what conventional psychiatry had to say about depression and how to treat it that those findings were kind of essentially ignored for a good five or six years until it was repeated in a slightly larger sample of treatment-resistant depression patients at the NIMH, and that's when... The field sort of sat up and, and paid more, more, very much closer attention to it, and many more studies were done. Hundreds of patients at this point have gone through that protocol, and the findings have been very consistent. Seventy to eighty percent of patients will have a pretty robust um, and uh, relatively persistent antidepressant effect. Again, at this dose of half milligram per kilogram, and there's some animal studies that show. Um, that there's kind of sort of a sweet spot for ketamine um, for it to have that antidepressant effect, um, looking at both sort of uh, animal models, like behavioral models of depression, and then also what's happening on a, a, a neuronal level in terms of synaptic connections. You know, there are very characteristic changes that happen in in animal models of depression or in human, in human brains of people who are clinically depressed, taken for example from like postmortem brains of people who committed suicide you'll see essentially a shriveling up of the connections between neurons at the synaptic level in those brains. Um, that, and that effect on a physiological neuronal level can be reversed by ketamine, but only within a certain dosing range. So if it's too low, it's not going to happen. And if it's too high, it's not going to happen. So at the doses where we're using it for anesthesia or also that people, kids are using it recreationally, this two to four per milligram per kilogram or higher, um, you're not getting the antidepressant effect. So that's very interesting. And um, I think might uh, speak to why you can see such a wide variety of, you know, sort of phenomena, depending on the context that's being used and the purpose it's being used for and the doses that are being used. And so experientially
2: uh, at that but that level for people you would have been seeing, what would it feel like if it was a recreational user? Is this something like kind of floating around the edge of the K-hole loopy kind of level? Or is psychiatric effects more at you get pretty deep into the K-hole and maybe dissociated all the way from reality? Is there, or is that
1: not consistent? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe it would help to define the K-hole a little bit more. That's about the toughest thing there is to do.
2: Um, I'd say I would maybe if you wanted to define the K hole as completely ego dissociation from reality, where you don't know who you are anymore. Okay. And then circling around it is you're pretty loopy, but you know that you're still on a drug. It's just kind of you are, you know, maybe the top levels of your brain are are lowered. If it really is, does work by
1: the glutamate action of lowering general electricity. Sure, I'd see, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think you quite get to the point of complete ego dissolution. So I think throughout the experience, even though you're in a very altered space um, and definitely dissociated from your normal waking reality, you can get to a place where you don't know where the hell you are. It's like, but there still is an I to be somewhere. <laughs> um, there is still somebody there who can say, where the hell am I? Versus, you know, the K-hole, which as I'm understanding it, is like you're basically that I, the distinction between I and the world kind of disappears. Um, So you're definitely not quite to that place. Um, And yet you are very much removed from ordinary waking states. So it is sort of an in-between, and I think maybe calling it uh, circling the periphery is probably a good metaphor And so because it's uh,
2: Schedule 3, I believe, Mm -hmm, um, so there are clinics in a lot of the major cities in the country now where you can just go and get this stuff. What are your thoughts on the wide availability now with what you know of how well it works for various people and how important set-in setting is and where some of the places that this is being administered?
1: Yeah. I mean my understanding is that the majority of clinics that are in operation now – where ketamine is being given for depression are run by like anesthesiologists. So these aren't psychiatrists. These aren't people who have been trained as psychotherapists. Um, and the settings tend to be kind of clinical. Um, I've had people who've gone through them, describe them as almost like factories or, um, you know, very impersonal, uh, in a way like you're kind of there for like chemotherapy almost like if you were a cancer patient or something, um, something similar to that. Um, and, in my own practice, I do administer ketamine, uh, for depression. I don't do it in that way. I do it in, uh, an outpatient psychotherapy office. So this is definitely much more akin to, um, kind of like the setting of, you know, like the psilocybin or the MDMA, uh, studies where it's kind of like more of like a living room type environment. It's not clinical, uh, in the way that going to, an outpatient chemotherapy clinic or uh, an anesthesiologist's, uh, you know, pre-op room would be. Um, so, you know, it's interesting though, because, so I should say that there is ketamine the way it's administered according to like sort of the NIMH protocol, uh, for depression, which is an infusion. Um, usually through an intravenous drip that lasts 40 minutes, I do it a little bit differently, um, in keeping with the protocol that we use at NYU in the emergency department. So I mentioned before that you know, ketamine has been used in anesthesia for many years but it's also been used in the emergency department and when they give it in the emergency department it's not uh, a long drip, it's really just kind of a short term bolus. You give it over one to two minutes, you deliver the amount that you're going to give over one to two minutes and then the drug has its effect for about twenty or thirty minutes and then the people sort of come back to normal. Um, that's how I give it in office. And so, you know, the way I set up a, a session, it'll be twenty or thirty minutes in the beginning to sort of talk with the person, see how they're if if it's a follow up session, um, you know, which more often than not it is, um, I will see how their the previous days, you know, week has been since the last infusion and then uh, just talk to them a little bit about just how things in life are going in general, then we'll proceed to the infusion. Um, and when they're in the acute phase of the, of the effect of the drug, you know, they're pretty dissociated for 20 or 30 minutes. Again, they're in that place where, like, there's still an eye there, but the eye is not in the same room that they sat in when they started. Um, or if it is the same room, it's not really recognizable as such until they get back. Um, and. Uh, And then when they're back, then we can talk, we'll ask them how the experience went, what came up. Um, Sometimes there will be useful insights, psychological insights that we can talk about, but more often than not, it's kind of very difficult for them to put into words where where they just were. And so there's not a whole lot that uh, can be worked with in a traditional psychotherapeutic sense. And yet, um, it's clear to me that something has shifted. Um, and they feel that something has shifted. It's not, you know, it's, even if it's very difficult for them to put into words and then, you know, three out of four times the next day, couple of days, they, depression, which can be really severe in some cases, just starts to lift somehow. And, they're able to be motivated and interested in things again and, and their ability to like laugh and derive pleasure from their life, you know, sort of returns out of nowhere. And it really does happen that quickly. Uh, and, and and when that does occur, you know, the, the challenge at that point is to how to sustain it, how to maintain the effect because it is a time limited effect. It'll fade uh, on the order of anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of weeks, depending on the person. Um, and sometimes it takes a little bit of tweaking of the dose too. times I'll maybe go up from a half milligram per kilogram up to like 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. Um, but, you know, with what happens with ketamine with repeated infusions, so if the time to uh, resurgence of the depression after a single treatment in a given person was a week, say, if you give three or four or five treatments in a row, you know, separated by days or a week in between after that final infusion, you might put them in total remission, you know, indefinitely more often. It's like remission that can last for a few months. A lot of these patients are coming to me from other psychiatrists who are also at the same time treating them with conventional antidepressants, which can happen sometimes at that point, the conventional antidepressants can take over and, um, you know, they can be in a state of remission, you know, using that as kind of a maintenance strategy, but, um, you know, it, so it varies. Um, ideally what's happening in for people is that, you know, they get unstuck from a place of, of depression where, you know, depression has this way of sustaining itself where the symptoms are such that you're withdrawing from the things in life that can sustain you and bring you joy and meaning in your life. And once it gets to that point where you're cut off from those things, it becomes a very vicious cycle because the, it's, you know, if you're in a severe depression, you're cutting yourself off from the things that can counteract it. You're becoming increasingly sort of isolated and, it, you know, it It can be really hard to, to come out of that place without a, a direct intervention such as, you know, a drug, a ketamine infusion, something like that. Um, but once you're out of there, hopefully, you know, you can make the changes in your life that can then really sustain long-term health, which should, you know, can be anything depending on, you know, who, who you're talking about, but, um, people can make decisions, you know, maybe they're not in the right line of work. Maybe they're not with the right partner. Maybe, you know, they need to make some major changes in their life. Um, And, you know, that can be uh, as big a piece of sustaining an antidepressant effect as any any other sort of treatment intervention.
2: It's fascinating what ketamine can do, and I'm really glad you're there doing the research and moving that one forward. So I'd like to be checking in more and more as as you keep doing all these different works. Um, So before I let you get back to enjoying Boulder and getting ready for your session tomorrow, uh, the golden question is... If you could be outside the drug scheduling system of this country and we could get, land you a very big grant to do just the kind of work you want to be doing using the whole palette of psychoactives out there as well as the space creating,
1: what kind of place, what kind of center would you like to run? Mm-hmm. I've given this a lot of thought because ultimately, you know, the goal with this, all of this work is to get these substances rescheduled so they can then become a part of the legitimized. Clinical toolbox uh, at our disposal, but if that didn't exist i mean i th- what I imagine is something like almost like a like a Zen Buddhist temple retreat I mean not without any like dogmatic religious overtones, but like some place in nature um I imagine with like lots of trees and some running water and um places a place. Uh, that itself kind of resonates with the um, feeling that we're trying to engender, which is one of, you know, a restoration to peace and wholeness for people. I mean, I think um, that environment could be really conducive to that. Um, a place that almost like kind of like an ashram or, or like a meditation retreat, like an environment like that, like that's um, where people are, are sort of, ideally like living and working um, and people who are coming, whether it's for healing or for just like spiritual. I mean, I would want these things to also be available just not just for the treatment of, of, you know, quote unquote mental illness, but um, to help people who are uh, not diagnosable with anything, but who are trying to use these substances as a way of uh, promoting their own spiritual growth and development. I think they're very important tools for that purpose as well, um, which is, way outside the medical model, but, um, I think that, that ultimately might be their most important function, um, in terms of what they can contribute to the evolution of our species. But, um, something, you know, so for people who are seeking that type of transformation, they can come and stay and, and live in the space, uh, with the people who are there more sort of long um, for a week, two weeks, however long it needs, the process will need, where um, they can, you know, return it's almost like uh oh, I'm such a nerd, but um, a place like Rivendell, <laughs> Lord of the Rings is kind of what I imagine, um, <laughs> the last homely house. Um, Some place like that where there's like sort of magic in the air and in the trees and people, you know, it's it's inhabited by enlightened spiritual loving beings that I think could be any human being at his or her highest self. Um, I think we're all sort of, I don't know. I, my goal in life is to evolve to the point of a token elf. (laughs) That's where I'm, that's where I hope all this is headed for me. I want to become Elrond's nephew. (laughs) And with that, I lose my position in maps. (laughs) (laughs) But, I don't know. No, you'll be chief elf one of these days. Yeah, maybe. Don't you worry. (laughs) Heading up Elrond's council, sure, why not? No, but seriously, like, a place like that, a place that is, itself has, breathes the magic of transformation and growth. I mean, there's something already magical about, like, a forest, anyway. Um, So just, like, a place where, like, the architecture sort of... Uh, is harmonious with nature you know and um, in fact um, maybe to even like up the geek level one step further not even Rivendell but um, the forest where Galadriel lives in Lord of the Rings which I'm God I'm spacing on the name of it oh Lothlorien That's what it is. (laughs) Lothlorien, where the elves actually have their homes are built up in the trees like that. I don't know if initially we need to be in the trees, but something where it's like the architecture is very sort of biologically, almost like mimicking the the biology uh, of the structure of the biology around it. Um, Something that's very like symbiotic with the environment. Um, That's kind of what I imagine. So if I had a billion dollars and can do that, I'd build Lothlorian. I'd hire Kate Blanchett to be there in her full regalia at all times. And uh, (laughs) we'd do it up straight up Lothlorian style. That's what it would be. Uh,
2: I wish you luck, and I hope that we can all see your vision accomplished someday not too far away. Me too. Casey, thanks so much for sharing, and thanks for all your work pushing these psychoactives out there in different directions to do the help.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Lex you mm-hmm.